0: Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1, as we'll look at verses 21 through 23. Before reading, let's join our hearts together in prayer, asking for our God's blessing. Great God, manifest your glory in this place now, in this service of worship. Please use this poor instrument in your hands to accomplish mighty deeds in this place, to unite sinners to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, and to grow those in union with him in his grace, to preserve us and give us perseverance to go through this earthly pilgrimage and finally attain our heavenly blessed destination. As we read here of the reconciliation that is ours in Jesus Christ, would you reconcile sinners to him this very hour? Would you glorify yourself in this way? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. You'll recall that the past few sermons, we looked at the magnificent hymn of praise to Christ from verses 15 through 20, where The Apostle Paul shows us the glory of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, God the Son, as He is Lord of creation. All things have been made through Him and for Him. God the Son is the Lord of redemption as well, where He effected a reconciliation between sinners and God. And more than that, God the Son is the Lord of the new creation, where the reconciliation that sinners have in Jesus Christ finds its environment in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Moving from that magnificent hymn of praise to Christ, Paul is moving from Christ to you in verses 21 through 23. As you see there in verse 21, and you. The focus shifts from Christ to the Christian or to the church. So coming off the heels of this magnificent hymn of praise to Christ, the focus is upon your response. You must respond to Jesus Christ. You must respond in allegiance to him, in trust in him, and obedience to him now and always. You must give unqualified allegiance to this exalted Savior alongside of and with no one and nothing else. Paul is picking up on and unpacking more of the theme of reconciliation, picking up there from verse 20. So if you look at verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here in our passage this evening, Paul is expanding upon and unpacking more of that theme of reconciliation that he mentioned there at the end of the Christ hymn in verse 20. There is much here, and I want to provide a D-plus supplement to my D-minus sermon last time in this way. The reconciliation in verse 20 has a cosmic scope. All things in heaven and on earth are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. There is a a historical transition in the relationship between the realms of heaven and of earth. In the beginning, in the state of innocence, heaven and earth were made as distinct realms, but inseparable realms. Both heaven and earth, the invisible heavens and the earthly realm, were united together. They were disposed toward God, made for God. And those two realms, though distinct had the capacity through Adam's obedience, the first federal covenant head, those two realms would be united in one great realm, one greater realm by his perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience where he and his posterity would enter into Sabbath rest and heavenly glory. Heaven and earth were made distinct but inseparable disposed toward God and by Adam's obedience would be unified in one great realm of glory and praise to the triune God. However, in sin and misery, because of Adam's rebellion, heaven and earth are now ruptured. They are divorced from one another. They are distinct and now separable. While heaven remains the realm of Uh, the realm of the place where God is acknowledged as supreme, where he is glorified and enjoyed perfectly and free from sin, earth is now its opposite, the opposite realm of heaven. Heaven is the realm of life. Earth is the realm of death. Heaven is the realm of righteousness. Earth is the realm of sin. Heaven is where God reigns supreme. Earth is where the devil reigns. Heaven is the place of creator worship. Earth is the place of creature worship. That is the rupture and the divorce of heaven and earth that Adam brought in by his sin and disobedience. But thankfully, what the first Adam did, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to undo. And more than that, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to do what the first Adam should and could have done. Now Jesus Christ has come to bring in a new creation, to reunify heaven and earth, reconciling heaven and earth in a new creation, a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, as Peter says in his second epistle. A new realm in which heaven and earth are not separate and antithetical, one in which the the creator is worshipped and one in which the creature is worshipped but a new heavens and new earth where God it reigns supreme and is acknowledged by all as supreme and is glorified and enjoyed perfectly forever. And all enemies are cast out never to reenter. So Paul picks up on this theme of reconciliation that he introduced in verse 20, particularly in verse 22. What was cosmic in scope in verse 20 is personal in scope. In verse 22. That reconciliation that will take place in fullness at the last day when Jesus Christ will unify perfectly heaven and earth, what Revelation 11 says is the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. In order to attain to that, you must first of all be reconciled to God you will not enter into that cosmic reconciliation unless you are personally, now by faith, reconciled to a holy God by faith in Jesus Christ, the Reconciler. And so to sum up this paragraph for us this evening, verses 21 to 23, we could say this. Once you have received reconciliation as a free gift, walk as reconciled, unto glory. That is your task. The gift of reconciliation calls us to the task of walking as reconciled to the new creation. And so we'll see this in three ways this evening. First of all, we see the need for reconciliation. The need for reconciliation in verse 21. Moving from focus on Christ to the church verse 21 and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds the apostle paul is speaking to the church at colossae speaking of their former life apart from christ before they knew union and communion with christ by faith this in verse 21 is the believers former life or the unbelievers current life. This description here of the, of the unbeliever, dead in trespasses and sins, alienated and hostile from and to, toward God, is a relational description. There is distance from God, alienation, and hostility toward God. There is an antithesis, an irreconcilable difference now between God and the sinner that only God can overcome. This alienation, Paul mentions in verse 21, has its background in Isaiah 59 verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God, of course, is omnipresent. God is everywhere present. There is nowhere that God is not So, this separation that sin creates is a relational separation, an ethical or legal separation. There is distance between God and the sinner that cannot be overcome by the sinner because the sinner's sin separates him from a holy God. Sin separates you from the God in whose image you were made. Also, the hostility, as if alienation could theoretically communicate distance from God that would be unwanted, Paul goes on to say that this alienation is loved and delighted in by the sinner. He is hostile toward a holy God. God and sinners are enemies. Going back to the beginning when Adam sinned against God and broke covenant with God, God the covenant Lord voluntarily condescended to Adam and brought Adam into a covenant relationship with him, what we call ordinarily the covenant of works. God gave Adam the opportunity and the ability by his perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience to continue in his testing and probation would give Adam the right to eat from the tree of life and enter into perfect, eternal, unlosable heavenly life with God in the highest heavens. But since the prospect, the end of that covenant was eternal life, breaking that covenant results in eternal death. The prospect of that covenant of works was eternal nearness and fellowship with God. The breaking of that covenant then, by contrast, is eternal separation from God, which is the essence of of death. So not only Adam, but all in Adam who descend from him by ordinary generation, that is, you and me, all men, all women, all children descending from Adam by ordinary generation are covenant breakers. And all that we do, we do as covenant breakers. Paul goes on to show that this alienation from God, this hostility toward God, in mind, manifests itself outwardly and practically doing evil deeds, as he says there at the end of verse 21. We actually manifest our rebellion against God in countless ways. Our goal is radically different. In the beginning, man's goal was the glory of God in all things, and now your goal as a sinner alienated and hostile from God is your glory, not the glory of God. Your standard is not what God specially reveals by words, but whatever you think is best in your autonomous thinking. And your motivation is not a heart of love for and desire for the glory of God. Purified by faith, your motivation is your own sinful, selfish pride. You are driven by the engine of your own pride in all that you do. This colors everything. Because you are a sinner. And notice here how Paul puts the priority on the sin nature before he gets to actual sins. Before you ever commit a sin, you are a sinner. You do not become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Your nature is guilty and corrupt, and from that corrupt fountain flows all thoughts, words, and deeds. Even things that are externally good and what God requires— you do not do them for God, according to God's word, motivated by a love for God. This is what our shorter catechism summarizes so well in Answers 18 and 19. The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, the corruption of his whole nature, commonly called original sin together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. And following from this, the misery of that estate whereinto man fell, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Paul is mentioning these things here. This description of man's total depravity and distance from God and hatred of God. He is sandwiching this between the cosmic reconciliation in verse 20 and the personal reconciliation in verse 22 to show us that in your alienation, in your hostility, and your actual outward disobedience, you are part of, you are of a peace with this present fallen, cursed creation. This is a realm of sin and death. You are a part of this realm of sin and death, and you are under the ruler of this age, the one who has the power of death, the devil. You are all part of this complex that needs to be radically renovated and changed. You are part of this cursed, fallen creation. This problem, and we could go on to talk, about, talk more about the total depravity of man. This is a problem that needs solution. It is a legal problem that needs a legal solution. It is an ethical problem that needs an ethical solution that only God the Creator and Redeemer can provide. This is not something in which man needs to be ontologically reproportioned to participate in God's being, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. This is not living an authentic life and being a Christian, whether you realize it or not, as contemporary Roman Catholicism teaches. And it's not simply to be Christian is to be human, as Karl Barth teaches. This is a problem that needs to be solved, and you need to consciously appropriate the solution by faith in Jesus Christ, which leads to our second point this evening reconciliation. We saw first the need for reconciliation. Now we see, thankfully, reconciliation. Verse 22. Although this was who you were in verse 21, verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ's death has accomplished what we needed, reconciliation with a holy God. Notice here that Paul mentions Christ's incarnation. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh, but the incarnation itself did not affect reconciliation. He had to become incarnate. Why? So that he could die and effect reconciliation in his body of flesh by his death. He became incarnate to die and to rise again. Incarnation without death and resurrection does nothing, but with death and resurrection accomplishes a full and free salvation for miserable sinners such as us. This reconciliation, of course, is of a piece with the cosmic reconciliation of all things mentioned in verse 20. But to focus on the individual aspect for a moment. Reconciliation here in verse 22, along with other key passages in Paul, such as Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Reconciliation is the removal of a legal obstacle and the restoration of right relations which cannot be lost. I'll read that definition again. Reconciliation is the removal of a legal obstacle and the restoration of right relations which cannot be lost. I add in there at the end, which cannot be lost, to emphasize that the right relations restored are not going back to the way things were in the garden in the estate of of innocence. Because the right relations that Adam had with God were lost. And so if you and I are taken back to the garden, back to a situation in which it's up to you to inherit eternal life by your works, you're going to fall just as easily, if not more, than Adam did. That is a realm in which the evil one was on the prowl. That was a realm in which life was temporary. That was a realm in which life could be lost and was lost. That was a realm in which earthly life was at work, not the highest heavenly life, which is ours in Jesus Christ. Christ does not take us back to where Adam was. Christ takes us to where Adam should have gone. He restores us to our goal, not to the the starting line. Reconciliation here is a legal thing, which, of course, is of a piece with the cosmic renovation that that will come about, as we saw in verse 20. But personally, reconciliation is a legal thing, the removal of a legal obstacle and the restoration of right relations. Now, when you think of reconciliation, that definition is given for a reason. When you think reconciliation, don't think of what may be, termed a racial reconciliation in which the group that had the power for a time is now, is now demoted and the, the, power that, the, the group that didn't have the power for a time is now promoted. Don't think of, of a marital kind of or a friendly kind of reconciliation where we both just calm down and hold hands and sing kumbaya and are, and are friendly with each other. That is not biblical reconciliation. That could not be biblical reconciliation between a holy God and sinners. It is not that. It could not even hypothetically be that God and the sinful creature could come to the table, hosted in a neutral territory like Switzerland or something, and let's just calm down. Let's meet each other halfway. You did this, and I didn't appreciate it. I did that, and you didn't appreciate it. Let's pretend everything is okay, and let's just get along. Meet me halfway here. That is not biblical reconciliation. The covenant of works has been broken. You and I are liable to judgment. We are guilty in need of condemnation. We are deserving of God's wrath and curse for all eternity. You can't go back to the beginning to try and keep it again. It's been broken. Not to mention that if you are a sinner trying to keep it on your own, you're done before you start. We are legally liable to judgment. The covenant of works has been broken, and God's justice must be satisfied. There is a a record of wrong standing over against us, which to preview Colossians 2, thankfully Jesus Christ has nailed to the cross and took the penalty of that record of debt, against us in our place, but God's justice must be satisfied. There can be no coming together and meeting halfway between God and the sinner. The legal obligations, the obstacle between God and the sinner must be dealt with. It must, something must be done to it. Either you receiving the eternal punishment for your sin in Adam for all eternity, Or someone in a matter of hours exhausting eternal punishment upon the cross. Which thankfully our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. God's justice was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. He took our penalty in our place and he gave us his righteousness instead. Your sin and mine was transferred to him. He paid for it in full as a substitute in our place upon the cross and he gives us, not our our sin, does not count our sin against us, but he imputes to us his God-approved heavenly righteousness by which we will enter into the new heavens and new earth. God's justice has been satisfied. The Lord Jesus came to undo what the first Adam did. We are all guilty in Adam, Jesus Christ took our guilt and now we have his perfect righteousness instead. This leads to, within verse 22, the purpose of reconciliation. You see in the middle of verse 22, in order to, signifying purpose, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So not only... Do we have this reconciliation right now with God by faith in Jesus Christ? This reconciliation has a purpose in the age to come. Put it this way, reconciliation leads to presentation. Reconciliation leads to presentation. All who are reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, all who have their, the legal obstacle against them removed in Christ's death and resurrection— sin no longer imputed to them but the righteousness of Christ given to them and received by faith alone those who are reconciled to God in friendship with God that will be manifest in verse 22 in a visible public presentation that's what we see in our shorter catechism question and answer 38 speaking of the of the communion we have with Christ in glory At the resurrection, believers, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Now, do you hear that answer and how in that answer we already have these things, don't we? We already have resurrection life, Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 7. We have already been forgiven of our sins. We already are blessed in enjoying God in this life. But the difference being at that last day, this day of presentation before God here in verse 22, the difference being that what you have, believer, now by faith, invisibly, will be made manifest visibly and openly at the final judgments when all people will appear before Jesus Christ in judgment. That will be a day of vindication for the believer. A day when the mockery and the being made fun of and the being cast aside by the world in this life, that will lead up to and will make it all worthwhile to experience now. That will be the day of open vindication when our Savior shall say, enter into the joy of my presence. What we have already now by faith, we will have on that day by sight. What is now ours invisibly will be ours visibly and openly and fully on that blessed day. The reconciliation with God now will lead to our entrance into that cosmic reconciliation when heaven and earth will be made one and we will be part of that throng with all image bearers and with all angelic hosts with a glorified creation to worship God in his new kingdom and temple where all will be the special presence of God and we will all enjoy God fully and perfectly for all eternity. That is the presentation in which those who are reconciled to God now by faith in Christ will be openly shown to be so on that blessed day. Which leads us to the third and final point, the need for perseverance the need for perseverance in verse 23. So this blessed reconciliation in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now that opening in verse 23, if, may seem like a stumbling block, may seem like a maybe, maybe not thing, maybe we'll reach it, maybe we won't. It's simply what James calls faith works, or excuse me, what Paul calls in Galatians 5, faith works by love. James calls faith works. If you have this reconciliation now by faith in Christ, you will persevere to the end. And so we are called to persevere to the end. We are not yet presented openly in that heavenly sanctuary presence of our God. Therefore, we must persevere unto it. We have reconciliation with God now by faith. We must endure unto that time in which we will be presented as reconciled to God openly and visibly in the new creation. So what Paul has for us here in verse 23 is a from-to movement. We are to Per- persevere to progress from this old creation to the new creation. To think of it perhaps more concretely, <coughs> excuse me, think of the Exodus generation. Our forefathers, as they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, brought to Mount Sinai, and between Sinai and Canaan, had to progress through the wilderness. Canaan was theirs, they were citizens of that type and shadow, that picture of heaven on earth, the land flowing with milk and honey. Canaan was theirs. That was the realm in which God would dwell with his people as a preview of the new heavens and new earth. Canaan was theirs, but they had to persevere through the wilderness to get there. Canaan was theirs if they persevered through the wilderness. Same thing for us on a grander scale. We are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven, Colossians 1 verse 5 we saw. We are already citizens of this heavenly realm. We are to persevere unto it. So the perseverance is certain, and just for that reason, we are called to do it. The gift of reconciliation must manifest in the task of walking as those who are reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. This, I think, here, this biblical if, as Robert Strimple calls it, this need of perseverance, this, I think, is a preview of what Paul will give us over in chapter 2. So if you turn over to chapter 2 and look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. That is perhaps the best commentary on our passage this evening. As you received Christ, so walk in Christ. The gift is unto the task. Be who you are. Walk as your new identity. Walk in the newness of life that you have. You are reconciled to God. Now walk as reconciled unto the great cosmic reconciliation. Persevere in who you are. This hope that Paul mentions in verse 23, alluding, I think, back to or echoing back to chapter 1, verse 5 of the hope laid up for us in heaven. Hope is the totality of blessing for God's people. Resurrection bodies in a glorified realm, the fullness of salvation in the age to come. That fullness will, of course, only come in the age to come, but we have a taste of it now. It has begun in this age. All that we have now in part, we will have in fullness at the last day. Resurrection life on the inside will manifest to bodily resurrection. Invisible secret reconciliation will manifest in open and public reconciliation in the new heavens and the new earth. The fullness of God's kingdom the fullness of fellowship with God the fullness of resurrection life you see that paul mentions there that this hope of the gospel we are not to shift from don't shift from it live in it live out of it just as the as the vine pardon me as the branches are in union with the vine we are to abide in the vine continually over and over again it is from the vine that we get that nourishing life sustaining Source that we do not have in ourselves, but is ours in abundance in the fullness of blessing in Jesus Christ. This blessed gospel has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven. How could it not be? It is a gospel that is not confined to one nation as under the law, it is a gospel that must go to all the nations because the kingdom of God encapsulates all nations. That is why our Savior gave that commission to the apostles. You will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. The the kingdom of God includes men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, the gospel of that kingdom must go to all the nations. It's too big for one. It must go to all. And Paul himself, in prison, identifies himself as a minister of this gospel. The word he uses for minister here is deacon. He's not saying that he is an, of the office of deacon, but that he is a servant of the gospel. He is willing to suffer for the gospel, because, shown in part because he is in prison. And that is the identity of the Apostle Paul, that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, an ambassador of the risen Christ, to proclaim the gospel of this all-sufficient, saving Jesus Christ. He is not a minister who is a nice guy and a good good at, at, at relations and a good leader in the community. He is a proclaimer of the risen Jesus Christ. And, we're, and that is worth suffering for while in a Roman prison. Well, to bring this poor reflection to a close, I have two comments. First of all, this, this emphasis on reconciliation First of all, to the unbeliever, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. This is not something you add to, you do not need to add to it. The reconciliation is accomplished, it is an accomplished fact. It is fully ours in Jesus Christ. You do not add to it, you do not actualize it, you receive it. Receive Jesus Christ. Receive the reconciliation with God in him that he has fully accomplished in his death and resurrection. Be reconciled to a holy God or you will be cast out of that cosmic reconciliation into the lake of fire for all eternity for your sins. Be reconciled to God. And secondly, for the believer, with this emphasis on reconciliation with God now and reconciliation in the new heavens and new earth, believer, persevere unto glory persevere unto glory the, and it is simple as paul gives it get us the the advice the encouragement the counsel there in verse 23 continue in the faith do not shift from the hope of the gospel stick with christ don't try to add to him like the colossian heretics are telling you to stick with christ he is all sufficient He is all glorious. Don't forget who He is in the Christ hymn in verses 15 to 20. Stick with Jesus Christ. Draw out of Jesus Christ and you will have more than you need to persevere in Him till you see Him face to face. Use the means of grace. Use the word use the sacraments, use prayer, use public worship and Christian fellowship, use these ordinary things that God will use in his hands to preserve you and sustain you until seeing your Savior face to face. I'm going to close with the comments of J.C. Ryle that I've used before, but are worth rereading in this context. If any reader of this paper feels that he has counted the cost and taken up the cross, I bid him persevere and press on. I dare say you often feel your heart faint and are sorely tempted to give up in despair. Your enemies seem so many, your besetting sins so strong, your friends so few, the way is so steep and narrow you hardly know what to do, but still I say, persevere and press on. The time is very short, a few more years of watching and praying. A few more tossings on the sea of this world, a few more deaths and changes, a few more winters and summers, and all will be over. We shall have fought our last battle and shall need to fight no more. The presence and company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below. When we, when we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our cross and thought so little of our crown. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, we could ever doubt on which side the balance of profit lay. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. It may cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent believer, but it pays. May God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word in this place.